Hello, this is Professor Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor Rachel Gervich, Clinical Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina, about key strategies for the first semester of law school. Rachel Gervich teaches reasoning, research, writing, and advocacy. What drew me to Professor Gervich was her Twitter feed, at Rachel Gervich, where, among other thoughts, she candidly shares the pitfalls she experienced during her first year of law school. She and practicing attorney Sean Murata have expanded on these thoughts on their blog, Hashtag Practice Tuesday. In this episode, she talks about how she learned, the hard way, that hours and hours of memorization does not necessarily translate into strong law school grades. And more importantly, she discusses what she did to turn it all around. What drew me to you was reading about you on Twitter. And two things that kind of stood out was one was that, you know, you talked about making a relationship with a teacher who you had not done as well with and that that teacher kind of served as a mentor. And then I noticed during the bar, you were tweeting out that you had open office hours and kind of tweets of inspiration. And so I know that you have a lot of important um, points to share. I've read about them. But I guess first and foremost, I would love for you to kind of talk a little bit about the importance of making a relationship with a professor and how that can help with your career. What do you think? Absolutely. So I'm really excited to, um, to be speaking with you today. Um, so one thing that I found is um, I came into 1L year with a lot of uh, baggage and I thought, um, you know, a lot of us experience imposter syndrome and we're not really sure we deserve to be there. Um, and so I had a lot of anxiety and discomfort um, and felt that I constantly needed to be proving myself um, in law school, uh, which was not really a um, productive uh, <laughs> state of affairs. Um, and so and I thought that the way that one proved oneself in law school was by, you know, grades, essentially. Um, and so when my first semester grades came back and there were a variety of reasons for this, um, sort of lower than I expected, lower than I'd ever achieved before. Um, that was a really big disappointment. And I felt that, you know, maybe, maybe it was right. Maybe I really didn't deserve to be there. Um, one thing that for me, you know, I found to be really informative as I went on through law school is that I actually went to the professor who gave me my lowest grade, um, and had a conversation about why, um, uh, but also really more important than that, uh, was actually learning that, in fact, she still respected me and she would still support me and she was still interested in mentoring me um, and she continued to do so throughout my career. Um, and that was an important lesson that um, that I now try to remind students of when I teach them, which is that, you know, regardless of what that final grade ends up being, um, it's really important to actually reach out to your professors and form uh, personal relationships with them, um, not just because uh, it's sort of reassuring and reminds you that, you know, is sort of a self-confidence boost. But um, a lot of us here uh, are teaching because we really want to interact with students and we want to have that role in their lives. And so, um, you know, professors not only can help you learn and grow in terms of your skills and your legal analysis, but also can be really invaluable mentors as you move on and try to decide what you want to do in your career um, and make some of those professional connections for you, uh, serve as references, write strong letters of recommendation. Um, so for a lot of reasons in terms of you know both <laughs> instrumental in that they will be helpful for your career, but also um, that I think it's you know reassuring and, and really important to find that supportive mentoring uh, relationship with a professor with whom you can be open and honest and, and get the support and, and reassurance that you need. 
But I, I'm, I'm thinking about you as a 1L. Back to your psyche at the time that you made the decision that this was the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, so one thing I had is that I had a background from undergrad where I had a few very strong relationships with professors um, that proved, you know, invaluable to me. And so I realized, okay, if I can sort of get past this, um, I think the benefits would be strong. So I had that experience in my past where I'd had really fulfilling relationships with professors before. Uh, But honestly, in that sort of January moment where I think, you know, January is in many ways the worst month for a lot of law students. um, Agreed. And there's there are a lot of reasons for that, but also you know it was Cambridge and there was snow everywhere and it was really cold and there was no sun um, and the grades came back and second semester was starting up and it was just sort of like you know go mm-hmm. um, the you know when I went to go see the professor it was more out of frankly at the time I think it was probably more out of desperation like what could I possibly have done differently uh-huh. um, because I spent every waking hour and hours that I probably should have been sleeping studying and ended up with the worst grade of my, you know, higher education career. Um, and so I was like, I, I don't know what else I have to give this. And so um, I figured that going to see the professor and, you know, maybe part of me, well, I don't know if maybe part of me was hoping that like she would change something. Um, I certainly didn't ask for that, but, right. um, and, and obviously it didn't happen and it wouldn't happen. But I think at the time it was, I have no idea what I did wrong. I need to know what I can do better because I want, you know, I don't want this to happen again. Um, and so, you know, so at the time it was not, I'm going to form this fulfilling, rewarding, mentoring relationship. Um, the other thing was that there was really a, for me, you know, I had a class that I felt like I was really struggling in. Um, and it was not that class. I thought I actually got the, you know, so, so there ended up being, it was a different class. And so it ended up being, but the correlation between my actual grades and my sort of perceived knowledge of the material was not tight. Um, and that was a new experience for me as well. And so I was like, well, I really thought I got all this stuff. So I have to understand what I did wrong. And because I'm, I'm missing something about this law school thing, and I have to figure out what it is. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that you say that, because another tweet you said was, you could always read a book on substance, but that doesn't mean that you're going to learn the law or something. I'm kind of paraphrasing what you said. But, and I talked to my students about what I call undergraduate head, meaning pure memorization is not going to yield the results that you desire. And it seems like that kind of was your experience. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I am blessed with a very good memory in terms of for, for just sheer brute force memorization. Mm-hmm. Um, I will put in the hours and I can get stuff into my head and then just spit it out kind of unthinkingly. Um, and so that was a skill that had gotten me through a lot of undergrad, you know, quite successfully. Um, and I think I expected the same. And so I was going into real detail on every single case and trying to figure out here's what this rule said. And, you know, I would go into, um, I would go into class and I would almost transcribe word for, and I was a fast typer. So I would mm-hmm. transcribe almost word for word, what the professor was saying mm-hmm. and sort of what the, where the discussion went. Um, but it turns out, I think what's required on law school exams is a, is a, um, is a different kind of skill and a different kind of synthesis and then being able to actually use sort of the combined um, synthesis and, and what, you know, your synthesized rules and all of that on on your analysis and organizing it in the appropriate fashion. And so, um, yeah, for sure, that sort of I can cram as much material as possible into my head and then just spit it out was no longer working for me. And I needed to really readjust. And part of that was 
also, you know, I had, I would come in with these like hundred page outlines and I was like, ha my outline's longer than yours. <laughs> um, and that did nobody any good. Um, you know, and I was proud of it and it was really detailed and I would stay up until three doing it for a lot of the semester. Um, but ultimately when it came time to the exam, it didn't do anyone, didn't do anyone any good to have like a big fat outline. I didn't have time to use with a lot of unnecessary details. Um, so really I had to adjust the way that I approached, um, studying and realizing that sort of there was not a direct, again, correlation between sheer number of hours input and then the result. Which is the best advice for a 1L law student, is that it's not just about memorization. And the hours are important, don't get me wrong. you got to put in a lot of... So, you know, it's interesting. I do not... I teach towards first semester, and I don't let my students use a laptop. And the reason I don't let them use a laptop first semester is because... I worry that they will become kind of a stenographer and write down every word. And when you're writing down every word, you're not listening and you're not retraining your mind, which is really what I think law school is really about, kind of retraining your mind to think in a way of rule-based reasoning or something like, you know. Yeah, and I think sort of the way that you know, whether that's via sort of an imposed laptop ban, I know some professors do that, and or versus sort of self-policing or, you know, going back after the class that evening and sort of looking at what you've written down and actually extracting sort of the key rules. I think there are a variety of ways, you know, to achieve that um, that would work sort of for different students or different professors or that, that would be appropriate. But absolutely, it's not just like what I need to know is everything that everyone ever said in class. Right. Because uh, that's, you know, and I would end up having this frustration um, as a one L because I just wanted the answer. And these class discussions seem to me to be sort of so meandering and <laughs> right. you know, like, there are no answers going and why are we doing this? And I don't understand why we're learning things this way. And can't you just tell me an actual answer instead of responding to my question with another question? Um, and I found that really frustrating because I, I wanted to know the right answer. I wanted to know how to do it right. Um, and so I think again, just sort of shifting that mindset, um, into, uh, you know, not, not that I think that, you know, I, I think some, some uses of the Socratic method really are more effective than others. Um, and there are definitely like sometimes when you end up with the read my mind or, you know, which is, which is unhelpful, I find. Uh, but, but for the most part, I think, you know, having students realize that really this is going to be a different mode of learning and it's going to require a different mode of sort of studying and reviewing than, than you're used to is a really important thing to sort of just accept right off the bat. Yeah, and and I will say you turned it around because you graduated magna cum laude and did very well in law school. So. I did, I did okay in the end. Yeah, <laughs> so that's good. Um, so tell me a few more of your tips. Um, so one thing, uh, you know, another thing I think is important besides the sort of you know, making sure that you understand it's a different mode of analysis that's required is trying to tune out the noise and tune out um, what other people are saying and doing and really understanding that whatever works for you might not be what works for your neighbor. Um, and I, you know, I find a lot of here, I overhear now that I'm in law school and when I was, uh, or that I'm teaching in a law school and found the same thing when I was a student, that there's a lot of conversation about when people start outlining or how long their outlines are, how many hours they spent on this and how many hours they spent on that. Um, and really, you know, it's not all coming from a mean spirited place. It's sort of Often it really is about commiseration or, you know, wanting sort of recognition. Um, But I find that, you know, that's going to be different for different people. I mean, people come into law school not only with their own sort of learning styles, but also with their own family obligations. Some come in already as parents. Some come in there taking care of, you know, an ailing family member. And so the amount of time you have to devote to these things is different by each student. 
uh, for each student. Um, and, and it's just, it's never productive to sort of say, well, they, they're doing that. And so therefore that's what I must do. Um, really figuring out, you know, I, on, uh, on my blog, we posted something from a student the other day who realized that outlines were the traditional outlines really weren't helpful for her. And what Mm -hmm. she needed to do was really reduce everything to sort of a series of flow charts and kind of decision trees to help her understand. Um, and that was really important for her. And, you know, I, I think as she started doing it, she got some, you know, querulous looks from her, for her classmates. And as it turned out, you know, she did really well. And so really figuring out what it is that's going to be, um, effective for you and then implementing that and trying to tune out a lot of I'm doing, you know, both with respect to studying and even with respect to, well, I have an interview with this firm and I have an interview with that firm because a lot of that is just really unproductive and it's easy to get sucked into that rat race if it's not something, even if it's not something that you necessarily want because um, we get really focused on outward sort of markers of success or external validation and really trying to uh, tamp that down as much as possible, I think is ultimately most conducive to mental health. I, I agree with you. I actually, it's funny. I always tell my students never to talk to anyone after the exam because I remember when I took my first criminal exam <sighs> and some student said to me, you know, did you see the mens rea question? And I hadn't, but there wasn't a mens rea question. So, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. And I spent all yes. like studying for never. my other exam saying, where's that the, mens rea question? The first rule about exams is you don't talk to anyone right, after the right. exams. It can right. only lead to bad things. So. <laughs> and I like your rule, hard work alone won't do it for you. What, do you, what, what would you say about that? Um, that's, I mean, partly that's what we were talking about before, which is just the sort of like, brute force number of hours isn't isn't really a useful metric and that you have to really study smart um, more so than anything else. So one thing that I didn't do enough of, I realized my first semester um, was not uh, sort of, I didn't synthesize the law enough. So I had these really long outlines and they were kind of regurgitating things, but they weren't really making the connections that I needed to be making and sort of putting things together. Um, And the other thing that I really didn't do enough of the first semester was actually taking practice exams and writing them out under timed conditions Mm -hmm. because there's nothing that will sort of replace that feeling and that experience. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of students just think, well, if I know the material, I can go in and do the exam. Um, But really making sure that you're sort of keying your study strategy, not only to a law school class, but to that professor's particular class. So finding examples of what the professor has previously um, given, getting those um, you know, getting those exams, taking them under the appropriate conditions. And then many professors will actually sit down and go over the answer will you, with you. Um, and so really, Before if there's... the exam, they'll go over the answer with you. Yeah. The practice yeah, exam answer. Practice yeah. exams. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I took your exam from 2005. I had a few questions. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of professors will be excited that the students took that initiative and be happy to sort of go over the things they missed and, you know, how might you have seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know at UNC, we do... Uh, we have students uh, uh, that or we have all the 1L professors during the first semester give a practice exam mm-hmm. and then offer different kinds of feedback on that exam. So I think, again, taking advantage of that opportunity is really huge if that's an opportunity that's available or midterms or something like that. Yeah, because, I mean, traditionally you got one exam at the end of the semester. And, yeah. and that's pretty much still the rule at most schools. So another thing that you talk about, which I think is really important, it kind of ties to mentoring with a teacher, but find your people. I know that's not about the teacher relationship. That's more about personal relationships with students. So I wondered if you could comment on that, but include your philosophy on joining extracurricular groups during the 1L year. 
Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, in general, I think students should be a little bit careful about overcommitting uh, in the 1L year. So that's the that's the baseline caveat. Um, I do find a lot of people that are really excited about pro bono, for example, ended up doing um, just so many pro bono hours and so many projects that it ends up um, cuts, you know, sometimes even cutting into class time or cutting into study time. So you want you don't want to do something that's really going to particularly the first semester um, that's going to invade on that time. But beyond that, um, I think it's important to find people that you can, again, sort of commiserate and laugh with and really find sort of feel at home. So um, when I for me, my second semester, uh, I joined the law school musical, um, which was uh, not just a sort of, a, you know, any musical, but it was um, we did it as like the law review. UV. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, we called it the parody and it made fun of professors and this law student experience and all of that. So part of it was oh my gosh, I'm not taking what I'm doing quite so seriously anymore. You have to sort of get some perspective, have a sense of humor about it. When you're making fun of it, it's it's hard to, you know, approach it with as much of a, you know, level of seriousness. Um, and also the people that were in it were kind of goofy, the, you know, theater people, people that I'd sort of, the kind of people I'd hung out with in high school, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a lot of shared interests and we danced around the stage like idiots and we sang and it was really fun. And it was, um, that for me was a really important experience in, uh, you know, I've now found people that I feel like I have a lot of things in common with. And two of those women are now sort of my best friends of the whole world. Um, oh, wow. and so wow. finding people, and again, it doesn't have to be that, but finding people in some fashion that you really connect with and you really can get close to because, um, law school can be very isolating and sort of, it can wear you down and, and having personal connections with, you know, at least one or two, you don't have to have a wide circle of friends, but people that understand what you're going through in that moment. And also, you know, can be, close friends and supports, uh, when, when, when you need them is really, um, key, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. So we actually, we used to have, when I, um, we used to have a review at my school, we don't lately, and we were Hadley and the Vaxendales. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Which, when you go to law school, you'll get. So another thing that you talk about is that, um, grades don't define you. And I think that's really important too, to remember, but you know, the problem is that, when you get into law school, you get into law school because your grades were good in the first place. And so there's that expectation. So how do you counsel on that issue? And maybe comment about how one who is going to law school, a 1L or starting their 1L, can kind of accept that even before they get their grades. Yeah. I mean, the part of the problem is that, at you know, or not problem, but part of what sets this up is just as you say, which is that, you know, students who've gotten into law school have been very successful, right? Because the admissions process is so competitive that there's already such a huge screen that they're used to being at the top of their class and they're used to, you know, doing really well. Um, related phenomenon is, you know, students who are used to being told they are fantastic writers in whatever their discipline is, right? Mm-hmm. So they they write beautiful English papers, they write wonderful historical analyses, and they come and as it turns out, now we're asking you to do something completely different. So I think there's two sort of related um, phenomena. One is what we are asking you to do to get that grade is now different than what you're used to. And two, everyone around you as you sit in a classroom also got high grades. And there's this artificial, unpleasant reality of the forced curve where you know, that A grade, it's art, it's again, it's artificial because it's not really measuring sort of, it's not, artif- it's not that it's artificial, but only it's only, it's limited to only a certain number of people that can get that grade. And mm-hmm. so, um, and so it's this forced, 
uh, ranking and this forced sorting um, that, you know, again, when you start with a bunch of really smart, really talented people, um, some people are going to are going to end up towards the bottom where they're they're not used to that. Um, so I think, you know, I, I talk to a lot of students in the f- spring that are disappointed right at the beginning of the spring semester that are disappointed in their grade, Re- regardless, you know, possibly my class, but possibly, um, you know, a lot of a variety of other classes and trying to remind them that, you know, first of all, it's only one semester. So nothing, nothing is determined by, by the one semester. Right. Um, and that there, there are opportunities to learn and grow and sort of improve that. But more generally that, you know, that those grades are not representative of who they are. That has nothing to do with how intelligent they are, has nothing to do with how hard they worked. Um, you know, has nothing to do with how good of a lawyer they're ultimately going to make, um, and really trying to put them in perspective, which is again, admittedly really hard to accept. And it was hard for me to swallow when I was there. So I, I hear it. And the other problem is that a lot of the things that are, you know, held up as the, you know, brass rings of law school are so dependent on the grades. So this firm won't look at you if you're not in the top 10% or why judge only hires from, you know, X, you know, people who have these grades, right? So it's really hard to keep that in perspective when a lot of the external factors are saying, but I need to have these grades in order to, you know, um, in order to reach this goal. And so for those students, we often talk about what the goal is and then how they can work towards that, notwithstanding the grade. So you're really interested in this firm. Let's see if we can find some alumni of our school that are there so you can have some informational interviews. Maybe you can aim for next summer and then, you know, make personal connections so you can get past the initial screen based on, you know, how on that interaction. So there, you know, no, you know, it's, it's hard for doors to truly close, um, but it's also hard for students to remember that. So trying to just reassure them as much as possible that, that, you know, this is, this is the system and this is not you. To your point about hiring, you're right. You know, it yeah. doesn't necessarily close the door. That's like a super valuable point that there are ways you can work around anything. And, and also, yeah, you're right. I mean, grades, I'm not going to say they're arbitrary because I don't think they're arbitrary. I don't think they're arbitrary. But, no. I, but, and I don't think you're saying they're arbitrary either, but the reality is that the curve does sometimes put people in places that they don't necessarily think they belonged or, uh, and, and I think this is really true and you experience this yourself in law school Law school exams to me are in some ways a game and you just have to figure out the rules. That's and exactly so, right. You know, the rules are different than the rules of undergrad. And so, the, and that's what I say to my students when they don't like their, you know, a lot of times I say, look, you just didn't figure out the rules first semester. You'll figure it out second semester if you didn't figure out first semester. So, um, yeah. So I think that too, but, um, that's, and, and that goes back to your January point. Like, you know, that's when you get your grades and yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the weather is bad, you yeah. get the grades, they're <laughs> probably lower than expected, and, you know, suddenly you're, but at the same time, you're expected to, you know, just get dropped right into the second semester, and people are looking for jobs, and there's right. just, there's a lot going on in January, so. Well, for the record, I went to the University of Florida, and I hated my criminal law exam grade anyway, so it was sunny and warm. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your blog, Practice Tuesday. Absolutely. So Practice Tuesday, the blog actually spun out of uh, weekly conversations that I run on Twitter um, with a practicing attorney, um, Sean Murata, who is at Hogan Levels in D.C. So he's primarily an appellate attorney that works in D.C. And we met on Twitter and now we're very good friends. Oh, you met on Twitter. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, he actually came down to do a panel at UNC last fall, which is the first time we met in person and someone videoed like our big hug in the hallway. Um, but 
so we started doing these weekly Twitter chats about an aspect either of law practice or legal writing or advice for law students um, that people could chime in on. So this week we happened to do, um, in keeping with the theme, you know, advice for one else. And so a bunch of professors and practicing attorneys and judges uh, sort of chimed in and, you know, had advice to offer under the hashtag practice Tuesday. So as it turns out, Twitter is not the best medium for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, uh, re- we realized last summer that we wanted sort of a more extended treatment of some of those, uh, issues. And so we started this blog, um, and we've got posts that we've, uh, we've written, but we've also solicited a lot of guest posts from law professors at other schools uh, or law students, or uh, we're working on getting some judges to, to post as well. Um, again, just about various aspects of legal writing, legal practice, advice to law students, how to pick a firm, how to prepare, um, you know, how to write an effective fact section in a brief. Um, so a variety of uh, different sort of practical uh, tips, um, and hopefully it's, hopefully it's useful. So it's just practicetuesday.com. Perfect. And, 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 you know, it's interesting. I interviewed a student who I met on Twitter. Um, she goes by Legally Complicated. Her name is Ina mm. Proctor. So, yeah. and, what I, and, and she created a blog. And, and what she said to me, which I had never thought about before, is that blogs like Practice Tuesday um, can be an unbelievable resource for people who are first-generation law students or don't have any connection to the law. I mean, and students, you know, people whose parents are lawyers, too, it helps. But, um, you know, when it kind of you're going full circle for me in this discussion, which is when you're feeling disenfranchised or you're feeling alone, you can go to these blogs and, and, and read and, and, and um, you know, explore issues that help you to get insights and also realize, like, other people struggle with these very same issues. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, part of what I found, um, part of what I found a little bit isolating until I sort of started getting to know people, uh, but students, I think, often find isolating is this feeling that, oh, no, I'm the only one that, you know, I'm the only one that feels like an imposter. I'm the only one that feels that I don't deserve to be here. I'm the only one that feels so beaten down or overwhelmed. And really, like, three out of four of your classmates, at least, probably are feeling the exact same thing at the exact same moment. And so, <laughs> Um, you know, at least, you know, one of the things that I try to do on the blog and also on Twitter is is just to say, like, you know, I think I'm doing OK these days. But I, you know, I was feeling really bad when I was a first semester 1L. Uh, I don't have fond memories of my 1L experience. And, um, you know, I, you will be OK. You're not alone. And I think that's a really aside from even the practical tips, I think that's a really important uh, message that I try to offer sort of broadly as broadly as I can and it comes through loud and clear I mean I loved your Twitter feed during the bar exam I thought it was really helpful to all thank you um, I really did and practicetuesday.com is is wonderful and I'm going to totally recommend it to my students is there anything else um, you want to offer any kind of other words of encouragement as we wrap up a little bit um, just I, I would just like to I think reiterate I think two things one is that you know, you don't have to wait to talk to your professors until after the grades come in. Um, And in fact, that is counterproductive. So really, uh, I know a lot of students are intimidated by going to office hours, or they don't feel like their question is important enough or insightful enough. Um, And I, I think that's often self-defeating or a misconception. So really, um, the reason professors have office hours is that so you can go see them there. Um, Otherwise, they'll just sit alone in their offices and, you know, work on their articles or work on, you know, class prep or something. So, um, you know, really take advantage of that. Um, Try to, you know, if you have a concept to discuss, 
then that's great. If you have questions, they, they don't, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb question. So try to, True. you know, try to, you know, try to think about, you know, hypothesize a few solutions or a few answers, but then, you know, bring the question to the professor. Um, or even if it's more general than that, and you just want to talk, you know, introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about sort of your goals. Um, I think, you know, don't be afraid to, to make that relationship and it will benefit, will benefit you a lot in the long run, uh, both. And again, sort of for, for practical reasons and to really form those mentoring relationships. Um, and the other thing is, you know, just go in, if you can go into law school with the mindset that, you know, at some point, and I know this is like a loaded word, but at some point in this endeavor, I will fail um, at whatever, at whatever, you know, whatever that means, right? My first writing assignment will not receive the feedback that I was expecting, or there will be a grade that's lower than what I thought, or I won't make law review. Or at some point, there will be sort of a disappointment. Um, and just knowing that that's coming and understanding that, again, that experience or whatever it is does not define you and sort of how you bounce back and learn from that and grow is really the, the learning opportunity is after that's happened, sort of what you do next. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, law school is designed to be um, challenging. And, uh, you know, in fact, a lot of cog- there's a lot of cognitive science on we don't actually learn as well if we're not struggling. Um, That's interesting. So, um, you know, my, one of my colleagues, Casey Bishop has written a whole article on, on using failure in the classroom, um, Mm -hmm. in sort of safe and supportive environments, but, uh, but really understanding that at some point you'll be disappointed. Um, and then moving on from there is really sort of the true test or really the true learning moment. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. So we're starting a new segment and the new segment is one thing I do differently. So what's one thing you do differently your first semester of law school? I would uh, study smarter, meaning I would not stay up until 3 a.m. making 100-page outlines, but I would actually sleep instead. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I would use some of that time to take more practice exams. Perfect. Great. All right. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful talking to you. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So that's my discussion with Professor Rachel Gerbich. Hope you enjoyed it. And thank you to www.bensound.com for the music. If you have a particular topic you'd like us to discuss, or a particular professor you'd like us to speak with, tweet us at Law to Fact. Enjoy your day. 